Sibling relationships can be fun and enjoyable, but they can also be complex and downright difficult. It all comes down to being different, having different lifestyles, different experiences, different philosophies, and different problems. Siblings can carry on for years and years ignoring their differences and enjoying their separate lives, and then one day, a parent begins to decline or passes away, and siblings are suddenly forced together to accept or challenge the final instructions for their parents' property and assets. Welcome to the Stand, Fight, Win live stream, Real Lawyers, Real Answers. I'm Keith Davidson. Hi, I'm Stuart Albertson. And we are a couple of real lawyers. Sometimes people call us real other things, but we are real lawyers. This uh, live stream is hosted by Albertson and Davidson LLP. This is being broadcast live on YouTube and Facebook. You can also find recordings of this broadcast on those two platforms after we're done being live. And you can always find an audio-only version of this live stream on our podcast, either at Podbean, where you can find it under Stand, Fight, Win podcast, or on, uh, what's the Apple thing where they have podcasts? iTunes. iTunes. That's kind of a big one, iTunes. Yeah, it's kind of a big one. All right. (laughs) A little bit of a brain freeze for a moment there. All right, so today we're talking about sibling fights. So you have siblings. I do. You have two... I have two siblings. Wonderful, wholesome siblings. Yep, they are very obedient to everything I ask them to do. (laughs) That's not been my experience in (laughs) observing them, but okay. And I have a little sister and who I love very much, but siblings cause problems when it comes to trust and estates cases. And if you were to think about all of our trust and estate cases... What percentage of them have to do with one sibling fighting another sibling? Oh, gosh. I haven't thought about that, but I'm assuming it's a high percentage. I I would give it probably about 70% of our cases, you think? I I would go with that. Yeah. I mean, a vast majority of them. Um, And then, of course, there's always step-parents and a few, you know, bad actors and all that. But a majority of the cases have to do with siblings. So let's start off with our breaking news, and we'll see if we can delve into this topic a little deeper. And on breaking news, we're dealing with a case by the name of Trollan versus Trollan, Patrick Trollan versus Nellie Trollan. I don't know if it's Trollan or Trollan, but anyway... Uh, This comes to us from the 6th Appellate District, and I actually have the site this time, which is 31 Calap 5th 939. All right. This is a case just decided a couple months ago. You read that so well. Thank you. (laughs) Tell us about the case. Clarified it and everything. Uh, So in this case, you have six siblings. So right there, I know that we're probably in business. If you have six siblings, you know, you're probably going to be visiting uh, one of us. And five of the siblings did not like the fact that, or five of the siblings agreed that the trust should stay in trust, like indefinitely. So the parent dies and five of them say, let's just keep this thing rolling. And one sibling disagreed. And that one sibling had the trust terms on their side because the trust said that after the mom died and once all the children reached age 30, the trust was supposed to terminate and just be distributed out. So that's what we call an outright distribution. So the one sibling said, you know, give me my one sixth share. And the other five said, no, we took a vote and a majority of us want it to remain in trust. And we believe that the trust allows us to do that. So we're not giving you anything. So they went to court and the one, the, the black sheep of the family, I guess, the, the odd man out decided to ask the court to order a distribution and remove the trustees. So what do you think the court did, the trial court did? Um, I'm assuming that uh, the trial court agreed with the minority beneficiary and said that the property had to be distributed out and maybe even sold before it was distributed out. 
Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So the trial court said, yeah, you're right. This says it has to be distributed. Yes, we're going to distribute it. And the trial court removed the trustees and even uh, awarded attorney's fees, which is pretty rare. But the trial court did it. So it went up on appeal. And the five siblings um, had a couple of arguments. So their first argument is, well, if you read, you know how the trust has like the good stuff, which is about how it's going to be distributed when somebody passes away. That's what we call the substantive provisions. But down below, there's all sorts of boilerplate language, right? And some of the boilerplate language is, hey, trustee, you have a right to manage the assets. You have a, a right to hold these things uh, in different accounts. You have a right to sell or buy, all these various powers of the trustee. So the five kids argued that those powers meant that they could continue to hold the trust indefinitely because the trustee was given the power to do that. And they tried to say that there was an ambiguity between those general powers and the terms of the trust that say that the trust must be distributed outright at age 30. So what do you think the, how would you view that if you were appellate court? Well, I, I would view it as I've learned practicing in these uh, cases in that when there's a specific instruction in a trust, you tend to follow it over a general statement. And the general statement here are the trustee's powers, which are boilerplate included in every single trust document. And so uh, there's not an ambiguity in my mind when a decedent says at age 30, distribute the trust. And I think that's what you're going to have to do. Yeah. And that's exactly what the appellate court said is where's the ambiguity? And besides the people who were objecting didn't have any evidence of a different intent anyway. And the trust, you know, the court has to look at the terms of the trust and a provision that says distribute at age 30 is more specific than the general powers. And so that's what the court's going to apply. And, and, and also, I think, doesn't the probate code say that we have to read the trust terms in harmony with one another? So, and that makes sense because when you have a, spe a specific instruction that says you have to distribute by age 30, that's not saying those boilerplate general provisions where the trustees are allowed to make loans and administer the trust uh, to keep everything going. It's just saying within the confines of making a distribution at age 30, this is what you can do with your powers as trustee. Yeah, that's right. Or before age 30. So if somebody's 28, then yeah, those powers are going to be used. But at age 30, then something else is going to happen. So that's exactly right. And then there was another provision that the five beneficiaries tried to hang their hat on, which is uh, it said, upon the death of the mom, the trustee shall distribute the remaining principal and any accumulated in income, which that's all the trust property, uh, or continue the trust for the benefit of the beneficiaries hereunder named under terms and conditions as follows. And what followed was when the beneficiary reached age 30, then their share would be distributed to them. So they tried to say, well, it says the trust income will either be distributed or continued, continue the trust. And so that seems to indicate that you could do one or the other. You could keep the trust going or you can distribute it. Distribute it. But what the court pointed out is, yeah, but you, you're ignoring the rest of the sentence, which says according to the following terms, and one of the following terms is, at age 30, you kick it out. And so that was, I thought that was, it was an interesting argument, I guess, just because I think the lawyers were getting a little creative there, trying to point to that language. But it doesn't make any logical sense because it misses the rest of the sentence. Well, you wonder how bad their arguments were to select from that they were using that as an argument. <laughs> there really wasn't very good arguments in this case, from what I can hear. Yeah, no, there wasn't. And so I think the appellate court upheld the trial court in terms of, now this was interesting, the appellate court said 
The trial court got it right when they said it must be distributed. So that's absolutely correct. Where the trial court got it wrong, though, is in ordering a sale of the assets, the trustees could choose to do that or choose not to do that. I mean, if they could buy out this beneficiary, they should have the option to do that. So the appellate court reversed that and said, look, the trustees have a right to try to buy this person out if they want to. And, and Which is interesting that. because that raises a whole host of conflicts of interest. Right. So I'm, I'm curious that the appellate court would say that because now you're going to have trustees that are going to want something, trustees that are ostensibly supposed to treat all the beneficiaries the same, wanting to treat themselves better. Were the, were the trustees also beneficiaries in this case? They were also beneficiaries, but the appellate court was kind of punting on this one and saying, hey, the trial court didn't even consider this, so we're going to send it back down, let the trial court work it out. Okay. So it wasn't... I was probably stating it too strongly, but it was, it was kind of like, well, say, selling the assets isn't the only option, and the trial court didn't consider any other options, so we want the trial court to consider some other options. Well, there's nothing like an appellate court here in this case sending something back to be litigated even longer. So. Yeah, right. Good old appellate court. And then the other thing uh, that they overturned was the attorney's fees in uh, the re trustee removal. So they said the trustees shouldn't be removed yet because once you have this order that the assets should be distributed removal may or may not be appropriate. And so they want the trial court to reconsider that as well, which I thought was really uh, strange. I mean, it seems to me that if you have trustees who are refusing to make a distribution, why shouldn't they be removed? Well, it seems like that would be something that the, uh, most appellate courts, and, and again, I haven't read the case like you did, they would leave that to the discretion of the trial judge because the trial judge was there to hear what had happened. And obviously the trial judge thought something had happened here that uh, rose to the level where the trustee should be surcharged for the attorney's fees spent. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of that was sent back down, which, like you said, is going to mean that the case will continue and it'll be litigated, which means there's a good chance it'll be settled. Right. Because at some point, the costs are just going to outweigh uh, anything you can do. So that's a really good example, though, of uh, a sibling acting as trustee and thinking that they have more powers and options than they really do. Not only in that case, though, with the tr with the trustee sibling acting that way, but then they've got agreement from, what, 80% of the other siblings? Yeah. And so that, you know, that's a lot of peer pressure. <laughs> right. And it's like, hey, why are you trying to mess up this ongoing business? We've got a good deal going here. Right. And this one beneficiary say, no, I want my I want my inheritance. And it seems like it happens a lot where people have this idea that trust can just continue as if they're corporations or something, and they're not. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point, especially in California, at some point, a trust must terminate. They cannot go on in perpetuity. Well, the other thing we probably heard in this case and, and uh, what we didn't hear it in the appellate opinion was I'm sure that the other five siblings were saying, well, this is what mom and dad wanted. And they always talked about and they said this trust would be here for all of us. There'd be income that would come off of it. But that's why it's important to make sure that when uh, um, um, husband and wife are doing a trust, if you don't want the assets distributed at 30, you need to put that in there. You need to put that this can be an ongoing concern and the trustee has the right to do that. And if you don't put that in, and in fact you say, no, there should be a distribution at age 30, well, End of story. That's, that's what it is. It is what it is, yeah. Right. And I don't understand why people have such a hard time with that. You know, if that's what the trust says, you have to follow it. And it doesn't matter that five out of six beneficiaries want to keep it in trust. It, it, the trust terms control. Well, and, I, and this reminds me a little bit of another case we had where we had a, a trustee that didn't like uh, a beneficiary. I think that uh, the trustee was a, a female and she had a brother. So it's just the two of them that were left after the parents died. 
And the brother was married to a man, and she didn't like the fact that the, her brother was married to a man. And then the brother died too. Right. And the brother had done the proper estate planning to give everything he had under that trust to his husband. Yes. And so the sister was very much against that and decided that under the trust terms, she did not have to give these assets to the husband. And I remember there, there was a specific instruction that said that all assets would go to the then living children. Right. And in, in that case, the, the brother, before he died, he was a then living child. And there were some other general provisions where it sounded like maybe you wouldn't have to make that distribution until a certain time had passed or whatever. But the court there in that case, you argued it. What did the court say in that case? The court said that then living means at the moment that the parent died, it went to the people who were then living at that moment. And so the son was still living. And so he, he took, and even though he was deceased before the distribution was made, it still went to his estate, meaning that it still went to his husband. And so it was a good result for the husband. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's another example of a, 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 a child wanting to rewrite the rules, right? And you can't. I mean, the parent writes the rules. Right. And if the parent wrote the rules, you got to follow the rules. And we're, we've learned now that the more specific a trust term is, the more likely it's going to be enforced. Correct. Yeah, no, I agree with that for yeah. sure. All right, let's move on to asked and answered. We have uh, probably more questions than we can really get to on this topic. And we assembled a ton of questions even before the broadcast that we've been asked. But uh, why don't we switch over to Kayla and see what questions we have. Kayla, come in, Kayla. Kayla, can you hear me? Delicious. <laughs> so we have a question from Facebook, and the question is, my parent died two years ago, and my sibling is living in trust property and not paying rent. What can I do? Okay, so that's a really big question. And so... Um, do you want to start on that one, or should I? Uh, buy a gun? <laughs> I think I think the implication is, what can I legally do? What can I Maybe legally do? Oh, yeah, okay. let's, let's keep well, it within Well, you can legally that. buy a gun in California. Uh, yeah. Um, so this is the, the issue where the trustee is probably living with mom or dad during mom and dad's life at the trust home. And or one of the beneficiaries. Uh, and, and then mom passes away and dad passes away, and the beneficiary or trustee is, is still living in that home. Well, they don't want to change that. They want to continue to live there. Right. And they want to continue to live there under the same terms they were living under before, which was likely rent-free. Yeah, it's a good term. And It I is like a good that. term. Yeah. And so now you have another probably responsible person that's gone out and done something with their life, and they're saying, hey, on, based on principle, not on the money, just on the principle, I want my half of the trust estate. Well, what are you to do? Can you do this on your own, Keith? Can you just go and, I mean, should you go knock on the door and ask them to leave? Should you call the police? <laughs> I mean, what is it you can do to get that person out? Well, it's a tough position because, no, I don't think you can do it on your own because I think it's fairly complicated. You're going to have to go to court, and, and uh, you can't just do an eviction action because a lot of times people will try to evict a beneficiary out of trust property. And uh, sometimes it works. Sometimes you can get an eviction, but most of the time, the court doing the eviction is not going to allow that to happen because the person living there does have some beneficial interest to that home. So let's say the kids, let's say there's two kids, we'll keep it simple. They each are gonna get half of the home, but one of them's living there, one of them's not. And like in the question, they've been living there for two years. Okay, well at some point that has to stop. And so the person living there has to pay rent, fair market rent to the other owner, um, or they have to get out. 
those are the, really the only two options. And, or they have to buy out the non-occupying beneficiary. So if one child's living in the home and the other one's not, then and you don't want to sell the house because the person wants to keep living there, then they're going to have to refinance or find a friend who has enough money to pay off the other beneficiary. Those are really your two options. Well, what if the trustee is the beneficiary that's living in the house? What if they go ahead and say, okay, I just deeded out one half the property to my brother. There's the deed. And they continue to reside there. Does that change the facts? <laughs> it, kind of, it doesn't change the ultimate result. So the trustee could distribute the house 50-50 to the beneficiaries, just do a new deed and say, well, it's not a trust asset and, and anymore. And now that beneficiary is forced to, to co-own with that trustee forever, that asset, right? No, you can, you can do a partition action. So co-owners of real property, once the property comes out of the trust and two people own it jointly and one of them's living there and the other's not, the non-occupying uh, joint owner can bring a partition action and f force this, the property either to be divided or if it can't be divided, it'll force a sale. The court will order a sale. And usually what happens is you file a partition action, you litigate it for a while, and whoever wants to keep the property will buy out the other one. So you can do that in a partition action or you can do it in a trust action before the asset comes out of a trust. It's kind of the same result, which is you're going into court saying, hey court, you either need to order a sale of the property or this other person needs to get off their duff and refinance the property and buy me out, one or the other. Okay, and one last comment I would have a question for you is the trustee who did reside there for two years, uh, are they gonna have to pay some rent out of their share to the other beneficiary? In theory, yes. In practice, it's a mixed bag. So you're gonna have some cases where you might be able to get some amount of rent for some amount of time in my experience, most judges are not going to um, force somebody to pay two years worth of rent because what they're going to do is say, well, they were living in the home rent-free. They were taking care of mom or dad. Let's just assume that that's true, whether they were or not. Um, they should be given some reasonable amount of time to move out before they have to pay rent. And so you're probably going to have about a four to six month period of time when most judges, in my experience, are not going to tag them with rent. But if it's two years, yeah, they're probably going to have to pay some amount of rent. Right. And then you're going to have to argue over, well, what's the fair market value of the rent? And, right. you know, so it, it boils down to a number. What and, number are you going to get? And the practical side of this is most of these cases are going to settle in mediation. And so then it's just a, it's a horse trading issue in mediation. How much rent are they going to pay? That's right. And the other thing I would say is don't wait two years. And so if you have one of these situations on your hands, try to take action as soon as you can, because if you let it go two, three, four years, trying to get that much rent is very difficult. Well, and, I, and that's a good point. You just made the judge may say, no, you sat around on your rights and didn't do anything. So. And I've seen that happen. Right. So what's our next question, Kayla? Okay, the next question is, my sibling borrowed thousands of dollars from my parent before they passed away. Does my sibling have to repay that money? No, <laughs> because it's a gift, Keith. <laughs> yeah, that's what you're going to hear. That's what you're going to hear. The person who received the loan, it never, it's never a loan after death. It's it was either a, a gift. It was either a gift or it was forgiven at death. So. It was always forgiven, yes. It's yes. either forgiven or a gift. So the problem with, in my opinion, the problem with these loans that are given to one child is they're typically not documented. How are they documented? It's a family loan. 
Oh, parents, so frustrating. Parents, you know, they'll give money to the kid and say, hey, you're going to pay me back. Well, not only that, but I think that sometimes there's a, a, a good number of times where the parent honestly did give one child money, probably not expecting to get paid back. But when the other child found out about it and They called it a loan. They called it a loan because <laughs> they don't want to deal with the, right. with the, you know, like, yeah. I mean, I'm a parent. I have two kids. I, I get that. Like, right. I probably would lie because right. I don't want to deal with it. But under the probate code... You're not going to be able to get any monies given to a child pre-death. You're not going to be able to get that back as an advancement or a loan or anything unless there's some documentation. Either documentation outside the trust or some very specific documentation inside of a trust. Yes. So the trust has to say it was an advancement or the trust has to say it was a loan. And we have seen trusts where they say, I have loaned my child money and they're going to have to take that as part of their share when you figure out the distribution. And so good planning will include stuff like that. Right. But bad planning will be silent to it. And then when these loans are given, there's no documentation. And then you have siblings arguing over it was a loan. And then you get, you know, stewards representing a beneficiary who received the loan. It's no, no, it was a gift or it was forgiven. And mom and dad liked me best anyway. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's what you're going to hear. And that's right. very, very difficult to fight against that, in right. my opinion. Right. Okay, the next question is, my sibling says my mom left everything to them. Don't I have a right to some of my mom's property? Well, I'd say, first of all, you need, to conf- you need to confirm if that's true or not. So if everything was left to the sibling, there's a, presumably a will or a trust. So get a copy of it and take a look. But let's assume that there is a will or trust and it does leave everything to their sibling and nothing to them. Then mom is, is mom completely entitled to do that? And what about the unfair, uh, unfair impression that leaves on the child who didn't get, it, get anything? I think this is the hardest part for people to understand, children to understand, is that parents have the right to be unfair if they have proper capacity and if they're not being unduly influenced. And if the child is a certain age, right? Yes. So if they're adults, okay. yeah. So if they're a child, then yes, you're going to have to pay child support. Right. And those are obligations that a parent can't get out of. But if they are an adult child, you know, we've had cases where children have gone way out of their way for the parent and have helped them, even though the parent was verbally abusive and maybe physically abusive and they were just mean and nasty and yet still the child took care of them and then at the last minute, the parent disinherited them. Mm-hmm. And the child's standing there saying, but wait, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. I went through all this. It's just not fair. Right. And we can still challenge that based on lack of capacity or undue influence, but you're not going to be able to challenge it on grounds of unfairness. And so parents are allowed to be mean and nasty and unfair if they're of sound mind. Right. And so I think what you're telling us is there's really two roads to this analysis. The first road is mom truly did intend to disinherit that person and did. And that is unfair. There's no doubt about it. Sounds like it'd be unfair under the the factual scenario you've painted. It can also be the other road where mom and dad didn't intend to do this and somebody else exercised undue influence over mom and dad to get them to do this. And in what, in that case, what do you, how do you address that? Then you'd have to sue and try to overturn the documents for lack of capacity or undue influence. And it'd be a trust contest, right? It'd be a trust contest. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Good old fashioned trust contest, right. which ironically, the child then has the burden of proof on. So they have to prove that any of those things existed. Well, and then, then let me ask you this and, and, be as honest as you can in this answer. We have clients that come to us and they say it's not about the money. And I tend to agree with most of them. That's true. It's not about the money. 
Um, it always comes down to money. But what is it that this person's looking for when they're doing this trust contest and they're suing because they believe that their bad acting brother or sister got mom or dad to write them out of the trust? What are you really suing for there when you're bringing that trust contest? I think respect. Yes. I think you're going, you, you want the respect of being an equal child under the eyes of your parent. And I think leaving an inheritance is the last act that your parent does to give you acceptance and approval and respect. Well, let me ask you, I mean, I know your relationship with your mom. I know it's a good relationship. If somehow or another, and I'm not saying your sister would do this, but let's say that she does exercise undue influence over your mom, I think you have economic means to make it without getting an inheritance from your mom. But would you have a hard time swallowing the idea that your mom had disinherited you? Yeah, I think so. So I think there'd be a lack of, you know, what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, I, wasn't I a good son? So you want why would my mom treat me this way? You want a court then to say publicly, so everyone else can see that you were not a son that was disinherited by your mother. Right. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, it wasn't that relationship. It was a bad actor acting to somehow thwart what really was her intent. And so that's why people say it's not about the money, because at the end of the day it, it really isn't in most cases. But the money's the measurement stick of that fairness and looking at the idea that mom did include me in her, she did want me included. So if I get one half the estate at the end of the day, then I've rectified this wrong and I can go on forward with my life. Yeah, it's the proxy and the money becomes a proxy, but I'd rather get my half and then give it to my sister. I would feel better about that because it would be my decision and it would be, it would show that my mother still, still loved me as a son. I'd rather do that than be disinherited and lose my half. Right. What's our next question, Kayla? The next question is a very common question. And the question is, my brother has a copy of my dad's trust, but he refuses to hand it over. What can I do? Well, can I just throw something out here, Kayla? Can you stay up on the screen? Because Kayla, look at Kayla. Hi, everybody, Kayla. Kayla um, talks to a lot of people that call in to our firm with various questions. And I actually hear her probably two or three times a day walking through this analysis with somebody. So Kayla, better than me, better than Keith, why don't you tell us what you tell people when they can't get a copy of the trust? Sure. So the first thing I usually ask that person is, have you asked your brother for it? Have you requested it? And then I usually recommend that they send the trustee, which in this situation would be the brother, send the trustee a letter requesting a copy of the trust or the will. And we have some suggested language you can use in the letter. You can say that you're entitled to that information under the probate code in California. And if the trustee does not provide that trust or that will to you, then you'll be forced to take legal action against the trustee. And in our experience, that's usually pretty successful in at least getting a copy of the trust from the trustees. You just have to ask, and it's best to do so in writing. So Kayla has pointed out that you ask them in writing, you say you have a right to this. I think this is probate code 16061.7. And and Kayla says most of the times that works. But let me give you the harder question, Keith, and that is when that doesn't work, you've asked the trust, you've asked this individual to provide a copy of the trust. We know that under probate code 16061.7, and you have a right as an heir or beneficiary to get a copy of the, the trust and still the trustee won't give it, what do you do? You have to file a petition in court and ask the court to order them to hand it over. And the reason why it's so important that you follow uh, Kayla's instruction in terms of sending out a written request is that under probate code section 17200, 
you cannot file in court and ask the court to issue an order until you at least give the person 60 days to hand over the requested documents. Um, so typically you're going to do the written request and then you're going to file and you're going to petition for instructions ordering that person to hand it over. Usually once you file and you serve it, you're usually going to get a copy before you have to go to court because most people see the writing on the wall and once they get served with the lawsuit for the petition for instructions, they're going to go see a lawyer and that lawyer is going to say, what are you doing? Hand it over. <laughs> so it very rarely goes all the way to court, but it can. And I've had it happen on rare occasions. We have one case right now where we've asked for a copy of the trust. They said no. We filed the petition. They're opposing that and we're going to show up. And my gut tells me that the court's going to look at 160, 61.7, say, is this an heir or beneficiary? They're going to say he's not a beneficiary. We're going to say, well, then fine. He's, he's an, an heir. heir. He's a blood yeah, heir. He's going to get it. And the court's going to say, give him a copy of the trust. Yeah. And it's really rare that it has to go that far. And I agree with Kayla that most of the time when she gives people the suggested language, I'd say about, what, 80 to 90% of the time. Yeah, that sounds right. about right. People will call back and say, I got it. Yep. And it's because of the help that we gave, or Kayla gave them, by giving them uh, our links. And so it, it really is a helpful step. So at least try that. And then if that doesn't work, then you're going to have to go to court, and we, we can do that. So next question, Kayla. Well, to follow up on that last question, we do have an article on our website that has that suggested language that you can use. So you can check that out on aldavlaw.com. And our next question is, my sibling refuses to let me see my parent. What can I do? That's a tough one. That might be one of the toughest questions we ever get asked because the real answer to that, the only way to really force the issue legally is to go to court on a conservatorship. And so you can have a power of attorney, you can have a health care power, you can be successor trustee. And yet, if one of your siblings has somehow isolated your parent or put them in a care facility and given instructions to the care facility, don't let my brother in because he's abusive, even though you're not, uh, they'll follow it. They'll follow it every time. And um, so you have to go. Now, the one thing I would say is that if your goal is to just see your parent and not to control the, any finances or do any financial things, you could go to court on a conservatorship of the person as opposed to a conservatorship of the estate. Uh, but you do have to go to court and say the reason you need the conservatorship of the person is because the parent lacks capacity or cannot resist undue influence. And, you know, most parents don't like being told you don't have capacity anymore. So do you think there's a difference in terms of how that would be received if I do conservatorship of the person versus conservatorship of the estate by the parent? No, because I think the, the bad acting sibling is going to turn it whatever way they have to to say that the good acting sibling is really just trying to get control of you and take away your ability to make decisions. I, I think that, you know, the comment I would have here is, number one, uh, document this, send letters. Um, if the, if the healthcare facility tells you you can't see your mother, ask for that in writing from them and, and ask for who told you that. Um, also send emails, uh, letters, whatever kind of communic texts, try to keep your swear words to zero and ask your sibling, you know, I would like to see mom because those texts are going to come back in the future. And here's the problem is you got to have self-control when you're the child that's going through this. Can you imagine, Keith, that, and, 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 and you have a wonderful sister and you have a great relationship with your sister, so I'm just using this as an example, but could you imagine if you had your parents and your sister kept you from seeing them? Th that has got to be one of the most frustrating, scary, 
uh, angry positions you could find yourself in. And you tend to say things when you're under that kind of pressure and feeling that, that, that way about somebody, you say things that are highly inappropriate. And so having some self-control here, not cursing somebody out, just making sure you're establishing in documentation, whether it's texts or emails or whatever, that you're being precluded from seeing your parent. Now, ultimately, you can ask the court to, for the, an order to see your parent, to have a visiting schedule. And if you think it's that important for you to have your parent and see them, then that's the avenue you're going to have to take. But I promise you, the bad acting sibling is going to take any action you take like that, turn it against you and tell your parent, who's probably confused isn't quite right, cognitively speaking, and try to turn them against you. But that's why the documentation is so important. So document everything that's happening so you have proof of it. Try to look reasonable in your communication so that you don't look like a crazy, swearing, demanding, right. unreasonable person. And, uh, and third, accept the fact that you may not be able to accomplish your goal right. because you may not be able to see your parent, and that might just be the way it is. And uh, it is unfortunate because conservatorship is really the only direction that you can take legally, and it's so hard to, number one, get conservatorship, and, and it's so hard to protect yourself once you file because, yeah, the, your parent's going to be told by the bad sibling that you're a bad person. Right. It's terrible. All right. What's our next question, Kayla? Here's another question from Facebook. How do I have a sibling removed as trustee if they're not following the terms of the trust? <laughs> Well, and, and we get this question a lot, and I will tell you that removing a trustee is quite difficult in California. It's quite difficult in the United States. There's a high uh, burden that you're going to have to meet. However, we found that tr uh, courts are willing to suspend trustees, which is different than removal, pending the determination of a trial on whether the trustee should be removed, if the, you can show some type of financial issue. If you can show that there was $200,000 in, in a trust account and now that $200,000 is missing, we found that we can get courts to move. But if you can't show something nefarious like that, and usually you're going to have to do some discovery to be able to show that, if you can't show something nefarious like that, I found judges to be reluctant to remove and or suspend trustees. What's been your experience? Yeah, I agree. I mean, removal is tough. And you have to remember that I think beneficiaries view this as it's my money, and if I want to remove the trustee, why, why can't I just do that? And the answer is because it, it's not your money yet. It's your parents' money or whoever created the trust. And that person put somebody in charge of that money, and the court presumes that that person was put in charge for a reason and that they're going to remain in charge unless they absolutely must be removed. And so that's the problem that you have with it is that, yes, you're getting a gift under a trust, but it's a conditional gift. And the condition is this trustee is is there until you can remove them. Now, some trusts have removal provisions. I love those. So then the trustee can just exercise some sort of removal. Most trusts don't. And so you're going to be stuck with this trustee. Yeah, I, and in answer specifically to that question, what I would say is, you know, file the lawsuit to remove them and ask for suspension in that lawsuit. You're not going to get it at the first hearing, but get a deposition as soon as possible. Yes. Get some subpoenas out to bank accounts. And the minute you can bring something to the court that shows that there's been some bad things happening with the finances, there's a good chance, it's not a great chance, but a good chance that the court will say, you know what, we're going to take a time out here. Right. We're going to suspend this person. We're not removing them yet, but we're going to suspend them pending the outcome of this case. Well, having bank statements substantially increases your chances. And the best case I ever had was where a trust that had three properties and we did some subpoenas and we found out that the mortgages on all three properties had gone unpaid for four months. 
And yet these properties generated enough income that was like three times what the monthly mortgage payments were. So there clearly should have been plenty of cash to pay the mortgages, and yet they hadn't been paid for four months. Right. Something's wrong. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket science to see something's not right here. Right. And we took that to the court, and the judge suspended that trustee immediately. Um, so those, those are the easiest cases right. when you have the evidence or the proof of something's really wrong here. That's right. And keep in mind with trustee removal... This person that you're trying to remove is entitled to an evidentiary hearing. And what is an evidentiary hearing? It's a full-blown trial. Right. And that is that going to happen anytime soon? <laughs> not, in, not in our court system. No, it's going to take a while. That's what suspension is for, is that it's, it's suspending the trustee pending trial. So removal is not going to happen right away. It's going to take, what, 18 to 24 months to get a removal trial in most courts right. on average. Uh, sometimes you can get them sooner. But on average, 18 months, you're doing pretty good. Uh, suspension is supposed to remove that trustee temporarily until trial, and most judges aren't going to do that. They're just not going to shoot from the hip, as you like to say, right. prior to trial. One last comment is is if, if, if that trustee is not following the trust terms, which it sounds like they're not, if you do hire a lawyer and then the trustee in kind hires another lawyer and both lawyers that are opposing each other know what they're doing in this area, does that iron these things out in most cases? It can, yeah, because... A lot of times, especially if a trustee has, has done some things in, inappropriately, and so the trustee is doing some wrong things, and then once the lawsuit starts, they go and hire a lawyer. That lawyer is going to say, look, you need to get, if you can step aside and voluntarily resign in exchange for a release from some of these things that probably weren't quite right that you did, it would be in your best interest to do that. And a lot of times that's what happens is rather than face the music, they'd rather just voluntarily resign. And that's good for the beneficiary too, because it gets the bad trustee out of the way. A better trustee can come into place and now things can be properly managed and, and invested. Okay, our next question is a pretty heartbreaking one. And the situation is my sibling refused to let me see my parent when they were dying, and then they waited weeks or even months to tell me that they passed away. Can I sue my sibling for that? That is a devastating situation, and it happens fairly often. I, you know, it, it's, it's sad because we hear that, you know. I, mean, not, I wouldn't say a lot, but more than I would like. And so what do you do in that situation? Can you get damages against a sibling for having done that? Because it seems awfully malicious. Technically, you cannot. I mean, I suppose if you had some type of emotional distress, which I have not seen that lawsuit filed, you could potentially sue um, for your emotional distress injuries, which is an interesting concept to at least evaluate under the right set of uh, facts if you come across them. Uh, but I do think these type of facts help us in these cases as we're developing our case. So let's say that a trust contest comes out of this and we're trying to invalidate a trust amendment that was done three weeks before the mom died. And then you have the, the bad acting child here not even informing the other sibling of mom's death until well after mom's been buried. You can't even go to the funeral, can't go to the ceremony. And I agree with you, Keith, these are awful. This is something that is very hard to live with for that sibling that missed out on this. They, everyone should be given that opportunity to go to the funeral and, and yeah, say their last sure. goodbyes. Right. And But what we found is that in deposition, when you're taking the bad acting sibling's deposition, you can see that they realized this was a huge mistake on their part. It was, a, it was an error in judgment big time because this kind of fact really hurts. 
Yeah, so it really builds the trust contest side of the case, but you're not going to get damages for that particular act necessarily. And I don't think the court's going to say you get damages for that, but the court is probably going to be more inclined to give us the case right. because of the despicable <laughs> act that took place. It's what we call the persuasive part of the argument. It may not be legally uh, meaningful, but it's persuasively very, very meaningful. Right. And and by the way, that is uh, that's that we do see, and I agree with you. I mean, we've we've mentioned it. It's it's hard to even imagine that that happens. Yeah, but it, it does. does. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible. That's all we have for today for questions. Very good. Well, thank you, Kayla. Appreciate all your help, and um, want to thank everybody for joining us on the Stamp Fight Win live stream. We also had Benicia, our marketing expert, helping out on looking at the Facebook questions and being able to tee those up for Kayla. Any last words, uh, Stuart? No, we're looking forward to seeing you next week, and we'll uh, be back uh, trying to hammer out some of these tougher issues again uh, next time. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us. Albertson and Davidson is here to help you fight for your inheritance. Check out aldavlaw.com for our complete library of helpful legal videos and articles from your favorite California trust and will litigation law firm, Albertson and Davidson, LLP.